0: It's Thursday, November 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Thanksgiving is here, and even amid the pandemic, many will be gathering with family. Please be safe and wear your mask when you can. But let's talk about food. To start us off today, we'll give you the official Thanksgiving food power rankings. We'll speak to Lucas Kwan-Peterson, food columnist at the LA Times, for his take on where all your favorite Thanksgiving foods rank. A little preview of what you're in for, turkey ranks dead last on his list, pumpkin pie doesn't fare much better either, and cranberries might just be the most controversial food item. Next, one of the most interesting symptoms of COVID-19 is when people lose their sense of smell and taste. As many as 80% of people experience a temporary loss of smell, and while most recover in about two weeks, For some, it can last much longer and even distort some of the smells a very familiar thing. French fries might smell like rotting meat. Coffee could smell like burning rubber. This condition is known as parosmia. Scientists are studying why this happens and getting clues to how recovery might work. Robbie Whelan, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: The number one food that really sucks is turkey. I'm sorry to say it. People don't know how to cook it. They put the whole bird in the oven so the white meat and the dark meat don't get cooked evenly. And let's face it, when you're making your Thanksgiving plate, how much turkey do you actually put on there? No, where it's at is the sides.
0: Joining us now is Lucas Kwan-Peterson, food columnist at the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, Lucas. Hey, thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about the official Thanksgiving food power rankings. We did this before when we talked about French fries. It was a very diverse list. I know you got a lot of mail about it. I'm sure it's the same with this, but it is an important aspect of the day. Let's start off, and we'll go in reverse order, and we'll end up with the number one top Thanksgiving food. But Lucas, start us off with how you graded these Thanksgiving food staples.
1: As we get into the potentially most divisive Food family holiday of the year. Everyone has opinions on what Thanksgiving foods are great. We're all packed around a tiny table crammed with different dishes that different people have made. And we're having to field passive aggressive comments from our aunts and uncles and cousins. And what better way to talk about what foods suck? And the number one food that really sucks is turkey. I'm sorry to say it. People don't know how to cook it. They put the whole bird in the oven so the white meat and the dark meat don't get cooked evenly. The white meat usually ends up bone dry like you've just got cotton balls in your mouth. And let's face it, when you're making your Thanksgiving plate, how much turkey do you actually put on there? No, where it's at is the sides. So turkey is at the bottom of my list.
0: Yeah, I have to really agree with you. In your article, one very effective question. How often do you see it on menus and sit-down restaurants relative to other proteins and it's not very often. So I have to agree with you there. I do get some. It's almost a courtesy that you get the turkey and you put some on your plate. Maybe put some gravy on it to help. But you're right. Turkey ends up being one of those things that's just really tough to handle. It's such a big bird a lot of times when you are try to feed a big family. And you're right. The uneven cooking really brings it down. Number 19 on your list, very low on the list, is pumpkin pie. I think you're either team pumpkin pie or not. Yeah. I
1: It's never really appealed to me. You kind of eat it once a year. It feels like an obligation rather than something you actually enjoy eating. And frankly, the texture of it, as I said, and the appearance of it, it kind of looks like dog poop. Sorry to say <laughs> it, but it kind of does. And it's really not appetizing.
0: Number 17, cranberries, because cranberries shows up twice on the list number 17 and then way up at the top number five can so let's talk about cranberries fresh and canned
1: i really would like us to show some love for the canned cranberries i think they're delicious you get that kind of satisfying plop on the plate as you're opening up that ocean spray can kind of makes that satisfying moist wet sound just like a can of dog food, like you're putting it in the dish. And then it's got the dimples around the edge. And yep. I just like that. I just like the tanginess and like the denseness of it. It kind of reminds me of like eating a fruit roll-up or like
0: a fruit snack. I know that one uh, definitely could cause some problems in the family. My family usually does a little bit of both. So we'll do the can and they'll do some fresh for those that want it. I think
1: if you can prepare the fresh cranberries well, then those can be good. But I think, again, most people just don't know really how to cook those properly. And why not just go with what you know is going to be good? And that's the canned cranberries.
0: Number 16 on the list is sweet potato casserole. I know a lot of people love this. This is kind of one of those other ones where you either really love it or you really hate it. A lot of times it comes with marshmallows on top. I prefer the way my grandma makes it. She makes it with like pilóncillo, which is just like this nice little soupy kind of caramelly broth that she cooks the sweet potatoes in. And it's tasty just as is, no marshmallows.
1: Sweet potatoes, again, it's you like it or you don't like. Sweet potato fries, I don't like. It's just something about the, I don't know, the sweetness or the flavor or the texture. I would much rather be eating mashed potatoes. It's nice when you have the torched marshmallow on top or the piloncio, as you were saying. But yeah, it's just kind of not my thing.
0: 13, we have pecan pie, number 12, Brussels sprouts. Now, I love Brussels sprouts, got to have a little bit of bacon on them, but I like the line that you wrote here, be careful not to overcook them because they'll smell like farts. And I have to agree with that one.
1: We all hated Brussels sprouts growing up as a kid, but now they've become a super trendy thing to have on restaurants and they're really delicious if they're cooked properly. So that's the trick. You just got to cook them right.
0: All right, let's get into the top part of the list. Number 10 is roll or biscuits. And I got to say this, one of my favorite parts, for me, it's got to be King's Hawaiian rolls with a little bit of butter on them.
1: Some people will sort of ride or die with biscuits, which I totally understand and respect. But what's good about rolls is that it's great for them making a sandwich with the leftovers the next day. Yeah. But biscuits are good too, but you really have to know how to make them. You can't use bread flour. You can't use like a hard wheat flour. You have to use like a soft wheat. Most people don't know that. And they end up making hockey puck biscuits. So rolls are definitely the safer choice.
0: That's why we cut to the chase, like I said, and just use those Kings Hawaiians. Okay, number nine on this list green bean casserole. I'd rather just have some green beans with a little bit of salt and pepper on them, nothing else. But I know this is a staple of a lot of families.
1: I think if you grew up eating it, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up outside of the city of Chicago. And so, you know, Midwesterners have a thing about casseroles. We have a thing about canned soup going into a casserole dish and making a hot dish, making tuna noodle casserole, green bean casserole. Green bean casserole, interestingly, was invented by the Campbell Soup Company. And so you get that cream of mushroom soup, I mean, yeah, it's pretty heavy. It's pretty sickening, frankly, if you're not really used to eating it. But again, it's just nostalgia and you get the crunchy fried onions on top. So for me, it's a must have.
0: Number six on this list is ham. Now that one, it kind of in direct contrast to the turkey. A lot of people do love it, though not like
1: a nice ham. I'd like to see more ham. I think some people sort of had an issue with me putting it as a Thanksgiving food and not as a Christmas food, though I tend to think of it as just a holiday thing that people eat on Christmas or Thanksgiving. You get a nice maple glazed ham, honey glazed ham. It's hard to say that ham is underrated, but I think as a holiday dish, I'd much rather see a ham on the table than turkey because I think it's a little bit easier to cook and it's probably going to taste a little bit better.
0: Okay. Number five on this list is cranberries. We already talked about that Number four, cornbread. What are your thoughts on cornbread?
1: Cornbread is one of the few perfect things in life. I mean, like anything, you have to make it well, but it's just a fantastic side dish. It goes with anything. It's a little nutty. It's got great texture. It's a little bit sweet. Put a little bit of whipped honey butter on it. It's really a fantastic thing just to have on the Thanksgiving table.
0: Number three is broccoli gratin. Now, this is one that I, in my own personal experience, have not really eaten too much. I've had it in different forms throughout my life, obviously, but not for Thanksgiving, usually. A lot of people hate
1: it. It's another casserole. So it's like broccoli and cheddar cheese and breadcrumbs. So again, the Midwestern in in me just has a very soft spot in my heart for the broccoli gratin casserole. Some people don't like it, but they're wrong. Broccoli gratin is delicious and should be served at every Thanksgiving.
0: All right, we're getting to the top two here. Number two is mashed potatoes and gravy. I love them. I always go back for seconds on this one. It's pretty hard to mess up, really, uh, mashed potatoes.
1: Could you imagine going to Thanksgiving dinner and there's no mashed potatoes and gravy? You would turn around and you would walk out the door. Everyone loves potatoes. People have different techniques. You can do skin on, you can do no skin. I prefer no skin, but I think there's never really a problem with mashed potatoes. And then the great thing about the gravy, no matter how you make the gravy, if you like to do it with the giblets, no matter how you like to make it, you pour that gravy over your entire plate. It just kind of lubricates the whole meal. And who doesn't like mashed potatoes?
0: All right. And the number one Thanksgiving food, and I will gladly agree to this one, it's stuffing. It's so good. It's got tons of flavor in it. It's bread. It is one of the top Thanksgiving foods for sure.
1: Absolutely. Who doesn't like delicious seasoned stale bread? Who doesn't like that baked in the oven? You get those nice crispy edges, tastes like onions and parsley and sage. It's delicious. You can make stuffing a million different ways. You can make it with cornbread. You can make it with regular bread. You can make it with pretzels. You can make it with crumbled up bits of old bagels. There's any number of ways under the sun to make stuffing. I really do like the recipe in the old Vincent Price cookbook. Vincent Price, who did horror movies and did the scary voiceover for the thriller video. But I just love stuffing. It's really fantastic. Are are you a
0: stuffing inside the bird or outside the
1: bird? I'm definitely inside the bird. Yes, thank you. And it's frankly the one good thing about turkey is to impart flavor into the stuffing. It's really sort of its, it's only use. But yeah, you got to have stuffing.
0: Lucas Kwan-Peterson, food columnist at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much.
2: And um, for example, a lot of people I talk to who've experienced parosmia say that their favorite foods now smell like rotting meat or burning tires or, or even a sickly sweet chemical smell.
0: Joining us now is Robbie Whelan, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Robbie. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk about one of the most interesting symptoms that come out of people with COVID-19. It's the loss of sense and smell. A lot of people lose their sense of taste because they're uh, very closely related with each other. And, uh, you know, sometimes people recover after a couple of weeks. Sometimes people experience this for a few months. One of my cousins actually had it. It's still taking him a little bit of time to recover from it. And, you know, he says things just have a smell of rotting meat. You know, it, it kind of runs the gamut, all this different stuff. But doctors are really looking into it now. They have a lot of people that experience this and they're finding out other clues about how recovery to this whole thing might work. So, Robbie, tell us a little bit about what we're finding out about it
2: yeah well, um the, the latest thing that scientists are really interested in understanding is a condition called parasmia. and um, you mentioned the loss of smell, total loss of smell. that's called anosmia. that's a that's a super common symptom. It's so common now that they're kind of using it on the on the checklists for you know whether or not to get tested. If you lose your sense of smell and or taste, um, you should really go get tested because it's, it's become such a commonly occurring symptom of CoVID nineteen that it's kind of become definitional for the disease. Um, and, and scientists think that about eighty percent or so of, of people who suffer from from the infection, uh, the coronavirus causes, uh, lose their sense of smell, temporarily. However, there's a smaller subset of the people. Of those people who lose their sense of smell, around ten or twenty percent, people estimate, um, have their smell return with these distortions. Very unpleasant side effect called parosmia. And what that means is, some of the favorite smells that you were familiar with in your you know before you got COVID nineteen. Um, often what, what they call, uh, you know, uh, these, these smells that are sort of memory, uh, memory triggering things like coffee, chocolate, fried foods, they start to smell really terrible and people can't even bear to be around them. And, um, for example, a lot of people I talk to who've experienced parosmia say that their favorite foods now smell like rotting meat or burning tires or, or even a sickly sweet chemical smell. And, um, scientists have really turned their attention to this condition because they think that it holds some clues as to how COVID-19 attacks the nervous system. Because uh, the reason for that is because smell, the sense of smell is uh, is a very direct um, sense that goes from your nasal cavity. There are these neurons, brain cells in your nasal cavity. They They pick up on smells and they transmit them to your brain directly through um, through a, a little bit of bone that exists between your nasal cavity and your and your skull, and um, and because the the sense of smell is being disrupted in all these interesting sort of weird ways, they can tell certain things about how COVID-19 attacks our nervous system.
0: A lot of doctors are saying that kind of this transition from nasmia to parosmia is kind of at least a good sign. It's kind of a sign that you might be getting over it, things, might be changing, and some of those. Cells that might have been destroyed are actually rebuilding, even though the smells are wrong. At least you're starting to rebuild that. So what does that rebuilding process look like?
2: The key question on everyone's mind in the scientific community is, does COVID-19 directly kill uh Neurons, brain cells, and the reason why that's important is because there are different types of infections. Zika, if you remember that virus from from a few summers ago, the Zika virus was very neuroinvasive, meaning that it would actually enter the brain, attack brain cells, and cause all kinds of unpredictable responses. People were having strokes. People had what are called cytokine storms, which are very dangerous um, side effects that can actually cause death. So it's not actually the, the disease itself causing the death, it's these, these powerful side effects that happen. The good news about parosmia is that, as you said, it does indicate improvement. So, in other words, you know, if, if you're having parosmia, it's because your cells are rebuilding, they're regenerating, and they're trying to figure out. I sort of think of them as kind of like uh, alien tendrils. They're extending back into your brain, trying to find the right spot to connect. Or if you're an electrician, you might know this situation. In the dark, you're trying to connect a wire in the correct socket. And if you, if, you, if you get the wrong socket the first time, it's sort of a trial and error process. You have to keep on poking around until you plug into the correct socket to make sure that the system is set up correctly. That's the way our sense of smell works as right. well. So if our cells are not plugging into the right part of our brain, then signals can get mixed and we start smelling these really awful smells. And the reason for that is because our body is trying to protect us. It's saying, okay, something's wrong. I don't know what's wrong exactly, but I'm going to tell the body that this smell is dangerous so that the person doesn't eat it and, and make themselves ill. So that's what's going on there. Another, another really interesting thing about this is that um, I spoke about neuroinvasive infections. So, one way that this, this condition happens is if these neurons are directly killed. So that's a big question. Does coronavirus kill the neurons directly, or does it kill these cells that are all around your neurons? They're called support cells, and they, they make it possible for smell-detecting nerve cells to function. So if you kill enough of these supporting guys around, around the nerve cells, then that might actually make it impossible for your smell-detecting neurons to, to function properly. And if you only have minimal damage, let's say you just have a, you know, a small portion of your support cells are killed, then likely your sense of smell is going to come back in a week or two. Yeah. That's what the case is for most people who suffer from COVID-19. But there's a few cases where they're now starting to, to, to sort of figure this out, is that sometimes the, the, the virus really does go after these nasal cavity cells in, in a really aggressive way. And that sort of tells us that our body is doing a good job of keeping the virus out of the brain generally. And it gives us some, some some guidance on how we can sort of better recover from it and how we can help patients recover more quickly.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine how frustrating it might be to have these familiar smells kind of be twisted in that way. And it's important because, we're you know, we're finding out we need to manage inflammation in the body better when people are suffering from COVID-19. And then beyond that, smell is closely tied to mental health and, um, People with anosmia, parosmia, a long time they get depression or anxiety. So these are all other important things on why they're looking to find out why it happens and how to fix it and all.
2: You hit on two things there, inflammation and the sort of knock-on mental health effects of this disease. The first one, inflammation is important because that's why these support cells die, right? When a virus enters our body, our body triggers an immune reaction where, where everything gets inflamed. And that, and that inflammation is typically local. So if the virus is attacking support cells in my nose, in my na- my nasal cavity, and, and causing you know smell loss, then that part of my body is going to inflame locally. It is trying to isolate and destroy the virus, but at the same time, that inflammation also killed off a bunch of these support cells. So you know losing your smell is kind of a, uh, a lesser consequence than letting than al- allowing the virus into your brain, into your neural pathways where it can really do some crazy damage. But what it means is that when we're concentrating on recovery, we really need to work on um, on controlling inflammation. That's one takeaway from studying this condition that we've, that we've learned. Yeah, and then second one you mentioned as well, when people lose their sense of smell, we, don't, we take it for granted when we have our sense of smell in order and everything is working properly. But, but the sense of smell is, is closely tied to our emotions, is closely tied to nostalgia and memories of the things we love and the people we love. And a lot of people don't realize that when you go without a sense of smell or a sense of taste for a couple months, it can really wear on a person's mental health. There have been higher rates of suicide linked with uh, people who lose sense of smell or other senses, and we really want to control that as well. So it's important to sort of study this condition and, and, and how to restore sense of smell from a mental health perspective as well.
0: And there are a few studies where doctors are looking at the effects of anosmia and parosmia. So hopefully we'll get some more information on that and just see what it's all about. Robbie Whelan, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. Take care.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.